Good morning. Miracles of supernatural intrusions into the natural world. And Jesus' miracles, then, are windows through which we can more clearly see who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. In this series, we're going to consider some of the supernatural incidents that are credited to Jesus, and we'll see what these incidents tell us about him and about his kingdom. And we're going to start with his birth. Look what it says in your worship folder. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. We read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. angel appears to a young woman named Mary. We learn two things about her. First, she's a virgin. I was raised to believe that Mary was remained a virgin. That's not really possible because Jesus had brothers and sisters. And so she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but then thereafter she was a wife and had other kids. We also learn that she is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. We hear a little bit about Joseph in the Bible, but after Jesus is in the uh, temple at age 12, we don't hear about him again. He was involved early on in Jesus' life. Apparently, he must have died at some point in the proceeding because then by the time Jesus then is older and he's in his public ministry, we don't hear about Joseph anymore. But at this point, uh, Mary is betrothed or engaged to Joseph, and it's the beginning in Judaism. Betrothal is the beginning, the first stage of a two-stage uh, marriage process. The initial stage of engagement involves a formal witnessed agreement and the payment of a bride price. So sometimes you hear in, in questions, not so much today, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I. And sometimes you might have seen this, and that still is in some ceremonies. But back then, it was really, she was really given into 
And there was the groom would pay a price, the groom and the father of the groom, and, and the, he would release the woman. And, uh, um, a woman could be betrothed as early as age 12. And when that happened, the woman was legally married. Legally married at this point. What happened, though, is that the man then would go away. And about a year afterwards, what he would do, and I'm going to, he would build on to this. This is an insula. And um, what would happen is the groom would go away. He would go to the woman and to her father, arrange the bride price. And once that was all set, they were formally married, although the guy now went, and this is an insula, and it was the kind of dwellings that were common in Israel at the time. And what would happen is the groom would build on to the insula, which are houses around a common courtyard. This is what Jesus was referring to when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. In John 14, believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When we think of I'm going there to prepare a place for you, naturally being in America, we figure mansions on top of a hill. You know, I have my own dwelling and, you know, my own grass and my own thing. But really, when Jesus is thinking of the dwellings, this is what he's thinking of. Adding rooms to a common courtyard. This is the way they understood dwellings. In those days, and what Jesus says to us, then to the disciples and to us, I'm going to add on a lot of rooms to this dwelling around a common court, common courtyard. And this is the kind of experience Jesus sees that will be heaven, existing together in common around the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's something. It would be noticeably bigger than that, hopefully. Otherwise, it will only accommodate several of us. Much bigger. He's adding as many rooms as will be needed. The angel reveals that um, God's work in Mary will result in a child. This will be no ordinary birth. Uh, says, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I can't become, I can't give birth if I have not been impregnated, um, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God, God who brought life out of nothing, created humans out of the dust. This is not a problem for him. He can put life into a womb and that's it. So in that sense, then, this Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. Um, he will be no ordinary child. He's called the promised, he's called the Son of God. He's also the promised Messiah. Messiah. You hear Jesus the Messiah and Jesus Christ. Actually, Christ and Messiah are exactly the same word in different languages. Messiah is Hebrew, Aramaic. Christ, Christos, is Greek. They both mean the same thing. So Jesus Christ equals Jesus the Messiah. Messiah literally means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, two people, two offices require anointing, the high priest and the king. And the reason for 
putting oil on this designated individual is that the anointing gave to the anointed a position of power and the right to exercise it. It was the conferring of authority and responsibility. So as a high priest or a king, you were anointed, you were duly freed then to act on God's behalf to do that which God had retained the individual to do. The Old Testament predicts in a number of different places that a ruler will enter the world. This will be no ordinary ruler. He will be the son of God. The, he will bring the reign of God to the earth in a way that was unprecedented. God shows up in the Old Testament. There are things attributed to him. When this ruler comes, though, it will move from an analog version of God to a digital version. It will be God in high definition. And we'll understand what he values, who he's like, and what his kingdom is like. Uh, the Bible says a couple things about him. He will be of the tribe of Judah. In fact, the Bible has a number of prophecies in the Old Testament about what this Messiah will be like. He will be a king. He will be a ruler. In fact, there are a number of prophecies. This mathematician took eight of these prophecies, and these are them. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That's what it says in Micah. The messenger will prepare the way for the Messiah, so somebody will come before, and that was John the Baptist. The Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king, riding on a donkey. He'll be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. This is in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah also says that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and that money will be used to purchase a potter's field. It said this centuries before it happened. It says as well in Isaiah, the Messiah will remain silent while he's afflicted and he will die by having his hands and his feet pierced. So this, there was what happened, this mathematician did the math and he says, what are the statistical probabilities that somebody alive would fulfill just eight of those prophecies? And there's a number of them. And he said, so he did the math and here's what he comes out to be if you like big numbers. Multiplying all the probabilities produces a probability of one in 10 to the 17th power, which is 1 in 100 quadrillion. It's So the fact that Jesus does the things that are predicted of him in the Old Testament is not a mistake. It's not a fluke. The chances are 1 in 10, one quad, 10 quadrillion that this 1 in 100 quadrillion. I, let me, I'm just be. You're glad I, I stick. You know, somebody said, one quadrillion? Gee, did he just? Okay. Uh, one of the reasons Jesus wasn't taken seriously is that he was a different king than the kind of king they expected. This ruler was believed to be somebody who would be a political ruler. And um, they had great expectations, but Jesus kept a very low profile. What it says Luke chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, 
she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, citizens in the Roman Empire were taxed. And so every once in a while you had to update your information so that the taxes could be properly uh, identified. And so within Israel, what this meant, that you had to go to your hometown. And so you had to pack up. And, and at this point, Joseph and Mary aren't married yet, but they're betrothed, and she is with child, and maybe that's why he brought her with him. At any rate, both of them end up going on this journey. Joseph's just doing what he has to do. Um, the birth itself is told briefly. We don't really have a bunch of details. At Christmas time, when we talk about this story, we imagine this and that. But a couple of things, there's no account of them searching for a place. Um, we don't know that they found the last place in town. There's no indication of that. They just, they were at where they were. And no indication of a search. There's no speculation about a harsh innkeeper who won't provide a room. That's We don't have any evidence of that. Uh, neither is there a suggestion that the parents are too poor. That's we. They weren't wealthy, but that we don't know that. What we do know, Mary's time comes. She needs to give birth. There's a stable. She enters the stable. There are animals there. There's an empty feeding trough. She gives birth to the king of the universe and places him in an empty feeding trough. She puts swaddling clothes on him, which are strips that keep the limbs straight. That's the way Jewish parents made sure that the limbs were straight and so they would wrap and swaddle the infant. And that's where Jesus began to exist as a a mortal spirit within a mortal body. Um, this might have been front page news two millennia ago for us. We recount this story annually. We understand that some call Jesus' deity into question. Some don't really believe he claimed to be the Son of God. It doesn't make much sense. I like the way C.S. Lewis said, a man who was merely a man and said the kind of things Jesus said, C.S. Lewis says, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says, I'm a poached egg. It's that ludicrous that somebody would claim to be God. It really is. Now, in retrospect, we're used to it. But back then, somebody who says, I hate to say it, but I'm God. Okay, yeah, you might as well say you're a poached egg. Um, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Um, and we understand that. Jesus didn't claim to be a great moral teacher. He claimed to be God. That means he's either God, he's a liar, or he's crazy. Pick one of the three. But just being a good guy that was misunderstood, it's not possible. It's not because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God's son, the Messiah. Um, it's, impo it's possible to believe that Jesus is God. Now let's set that aside. I don't imagine anybody here questions that. Jesus is God. Of course he is. has to be. He claimed to be. 
Okay, setting that aside, it's possible to agree about Jesus' deity, a lot of people believe, and yet disagree as to why it's important. Let me ask you, why is it important to tack down that Jesus is God? I heard and that it's necessary because he couldn't be punished if he's not God. That God the Father has to pour out his wrath about sin on the Son, and that's why he has to be God. That's what I've learned. And I, I, I don't think that's accurate. Let's see what else the Bible says. Why is it important that Jesus is God? Let's look what it says in Hebrews. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those, all those, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It says some interesting things here. What did Jesus come to do? What did he come to deal with? At some level, what he comes to do is to deal with the fear of death. How many in this room, being honest, how many of you are afraid to die? Come on. All of us, even if you're a Christian or not, the idea of dying is very difficult, very frightening. And all of us, we, even the most mature Christians of us, as we think about breathing our last, there's a sense of resistance. And that's why Paul talks about while we're in this tent, we groan. And he talks about we don't want to be unclothed by death, but we do want to be clothed with heaven. So what he's describing, we want to move into heaven, but we don't want to move out in order to get there. It's always nice to think about moving into a place, moving out. How many of you would like to move out of the place that you live now? And you have to box all that stuff up, and then you have to do this, that, and the other. And, boy, it would be nice to get to some place, but some of us are never going to move. We couldn't rent that many trucks. There's so many things. We'd have to get stuff out of everywhere. Moving out is one thing. Moving in is nice. It's the same thing. Paul describes as he thinks of heaven. He wants to move in through his heavenly dwelling, but he doesn't want to move out of his earthly dwelling in order to get there. So what this means, it's okay if you come alongside somebody who's dying, or some of you might even have been in a place where you had a terminal illness, maybe do, and you're wondering if I'm Frightened of death, is that a bad thing? And the answer is no, it's not a bad thing. It's a natural thing. All of us, even, again, we want to be with him, but we don't want to leave this body in order to get there. Um, the fear of death 
though, can be an enslaving force. And what I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about I don't want to die and I don't want to breathe my last and I don't want to have a heart attack and I don't want to drown and I certainly don't want to be this, that, or the other. Um, there's another fear of death, and this is an enslaving force. When you add something to a basic fear of death, it becomes an infected fear of death. Something that is intolerable, something that keeps us in a place where we cannot be who God wants us to be. What is this thing that infects the fear of death? Interestingly, it says, Paul writes, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What gives death its sting? It's sting. The sting of death is sin. Do you know what makes death intolerable? When you think about dying and spending eternity in a place separated from him. It's not just the process of dying, but we're not really sure about what will happen afterwards. We understand that Jesus rose and we believe in him, but it can be intolerable. The sting of death is sin. How does God deal with the sting of death? By the way, that is why Jesus came. That's what it says. Look at that verse again. And again, what we're understanding now, we believe that Jesus is God. What we're zeroing in on now is why is it important to know this? And it's going to describe it a little bit. We, so we can understand and believe that this is what Jesus did. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on a body. He was born. He, he was born to Mary. He was implanted within the womb, but then was born through the birth canal, came into the world the same way we do, experienced pain, experienced all the things we do, flesh and blood, as we do. And it was God's purpose that this would happen. Why? And that, look what it says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Let me tell you what it means to destroy. I, I memorized the definition. Again, you're not going to remember it, but listen to this. This is what destroy means. It's not, it's not kill. It's the non-physical destruction by means of a greater power coming in to replace the power previously in effect. Listen to this. This is what destroy means. The non-physical destruction by means of a greater power coming in to replace the power previously in effect. Before Jesus came, everybody thought of death as, <laughs> because there was a power, there was a judgment, and we'll talk about what that was. But when Jesus came, it's not that the fear of death is completely removed, but what happened? He rose from the dead. You know what that means at some point? We can never look at death the same way because with Jesus, you know what he brought to light? And it was in the shadow before then. What Jesus brought to light is immortality. You know what the deal is? Jesus is still alive. And he was raised bodily. I mean, there was a body and it was gone. And now you know what we know to a degree that we didn't know prior to Jesus coming? 
Immortality is real, folks. It's real. Jesus lives forever, and those who believe in Jesus will live forever. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Somebody's tried to put their, how do you put your arms around eternity? Somebody <laughs> tried to put this. Okay. I want you to imagine there's a giant granite block, giant granite block, 100 miles wide, 100 miles long, 100 miles deep. There's a little bird. And every hundred years, it comes and sharpens its beak on this rock. You got this? Every hundred years, this little bird comes and sharpens its beak on this rock. When that bird has worn away that rock, one day in eternity will have passed. Eternity is a long time. And that's what it's going to be like. Living together in common, not warring with each other, understanding, being part with one another, with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally. That's what Jesus came to point out. This is real. Um, and what ends up happening, seeing that, it changes the way we view death. Sin gives death its sting. The power of sin is, what is the power of sin? And that's what we're saying. The power of sin is the law. Um, God reduces. You know what God does? Again, we talked about last week, but I'm just revisiting it briefly. I'll show the same slide. This is a reminder. God reduces the pull, the gravitational pull of sin by reducing or overriding the power of sin, which is the sting of death is, you fill in the blanks for me, the sting of death is, the power of sin is the law. It is the fear of judgment that gives death its sting. I wonder if he's going to point out the thing that I did that time when I broke that. And, and we imagine that that's what's going to happen. And what Jesus does to remove the fear of death is to remove the that which causes death to have such a pull, and it's the fear of judgment. That is what Jesus comes to deal with. How does he do that? Um, that is what the devil uses, by the way. The devil, we talked about last week, Satan is accuser and devil is divider. And so what the devil does and his power is that he accuses in order to divide. And you know what? Well, here's what God did. Jesus nailed the old lot of the cross. And we talked about it last week. What happened at the cross? This is what happened at the cross. If the sting of death is and the power of sin is, then in order to deal with sin, you need to deal with, that's what happened at the cross. This is why we need to believe that Jesus is God. Only God can do this. Who gave the first law? Who gave, who removed law? God. That's God on that cross. 
not being punished, removing that which causes sin to have its sting and to have its power. That's what happens at the cross. Um, Jesus crucified the law. This is what happened at the cross. Jesus terminated the rule of law. We talked about what, what does that mean, Mike, and we're going to apply it. It means that with respect to the Ten Commandments, we have diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity. He is not counting your sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. Hey, wait, 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 Mike. If I really believe that, what if you believe that? The sting of death is, the power of sin is, could it be that you're wondering what you would need in order to be a more responsive son or daughter of God? And it might be that you need to deal with your fear of judgment and believe that this is true. That's God on the cross. And he did that. That's what happened. The thing that makes it kind of challenging is that so many people have so many different ideas about what happened on the cross. And the problem is even the way people interpret the Bible and translate the Bible, making one word, we'll talk about one word, helaskamai, helaskamai. And you have, I, I don't want to do the game. Okay, just bear with me, bear with me, bear with me. Um, the verse says, at the end, it talks about verse 17, Hebrews 2. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is translated from a Greek word, helaskamai. Say it after me. Halaskamai. Here's what halaskamai means. Halaskamai is from two words. The first word is helios. Some of you who have been around have heard helios. Say, wait, wait, I've heard that before. I've heard helios. Where did I? He talked about it. He talked to me. When it says in the New Covenant, I will be helios to their unrighteousness says i will be helios to their unrighteousness says as part of the new covenant you know what that means gracious favorable benevolent non-reactive that's helios helaskamai is helios plus askamai that is the last word is the means by which the first part of the word is achieved helaskamai is the means whereby God becomes Helios. Understand that? Helaskamai, the means by which God becomes Helios. What does it take for God to become Helios about your unrighteousnesses? What does it take? There's a couple different views. One I believe is Christian. The other one is past as Christian. But it is more pagan. Atonement restores God's favor. Atonement is another way to translate. I think it's probably a better one. Propitiation. Do you know what propitiation means? The action of appeasing a God, spirit, or a person. <laughs> So imagine God being angry. No. 
I saw what you did. Yeah, I saw what you did. <laughs> and what this word is, is whatever would lead me to go from this to this. What does it take? And that's what this word envisions. Propitiation is doing something to make the deity go from this to this. Um, there's two different scenarios. What we know, sin breaks our connection with God. Sin does break a connection. How is our connection restored? There's two scenarios. One is the action is directed at God. God is angry. And we need to do something to make God not angry. And what this is, man brings, man repairs the connection. This is one view of atonement. It's sin, sin makes a disconnection. The action is directed at God. Somebody has to do something to make God change his mind. He's angry. And so somebody needs to do something to make God not angry. And so man repairs the connection. And what we do is we sacrifice something. We sacrifice animals or we do service or we make moral sacrifices. We do something. Give something to God. And God goes, well, okay then. We just don't let it happen again. And that's one view of, in fact, you know what this is a picture of? This is what propitiation means. And it's not accurate. This is not what happened. Let me show you what happened. Atonement restored God's favor, but the action is not directed at God. That's the wrong one. Now, would you believe it? I copied the same thing twice. Okay. Now, okay, here's a quiz. Now, what's wrong with this slide? Okay, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to tell me what's wrong. Why is Mike wrong? So this is what you're going to come away with. Yeah, Mike put up the wrong slide. He put it up twice. And this is what I learned. This is what was wrong because the action could be directed at God, but no, the action could also be directed at... Did anybody know? Yes! Law and what does law support? Sin. The action is directed at sin. Say it with me. Mike, you're wrong. Say, everybody say this. Mike, you're wrong. Mike, the action is not directed at God. Come on. The action is directed at... Okay, now laugh at me. <laughs> they laughed at me. <laughs> I didn't come here to be laughed at. <laughs> Where do I usually go? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Man repairs the connection. So tell me what these two statements should really say. Start with the first one. The action is directed at sin. God repairs the connection. There's two words. Propitiation is 
when the action is directed at God and man repairs the connection, that's propitiation. That's not the means by where God becomes Helios. God does not become Helios because we do something for him. He becomes Helios because he chooses to be. So, the action directed at sin Man, God repairs the connection. That's not propitiation. If, in case you care, there is another word: expiation. Expiation. Propitiation. When you direct the solution at God, expiation is when you direct the solution at sin. That's what happened at the cross. That's what happened at the cross. This is not Jesus dying to make the Father get over his anger. This is directed at sin. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is. So therefore, that's why law was nailed to the cross. And that's why God is not counting your commandment violations because The covenant that the commandment is based on has been nailed to the cross and taken out of the way by God himself. What if we believe that? By the way, that's not Christian. Again, it's believed. That's too strong. That's maybe too strong. But that's kind of what, at that time, the pagans believed. They had to kill something or do something. It really isn't Christian. What Christian belief is, God takes the action. God removes the problem. Um, This is something that really Christians agree on. Um, God takes the initiative to repair the breach. Come on up, Devin. There you go. God graciously saves man. God provides the means whereby the chasm can be spanned. There's a difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is defined as God. Man's attempts to reach God. I think Christianity is defined as God's initiative to reach man. That's what happens at the cross. And that's why Jesus needs to be God so that he can let us know that that which ultimately stimulates sin is taken out of the way. God has repaired the breach. And as we believe that, you know what it ends up doing? I still don't want to die. But it really helps me to know that I won't be judged. Believe it. When you go to be with him... He's not going to count your commandment violations and he's not going to show the highlight reel of your sins. He's not going to do it because that's God on the cross. You know what's going to happen then if you believe that? It does take a little bit of the sting out, doesn't it? Would you agree with me? We still aren't looking forward to the transition process. When we get there, It'll be everything we imagined it to be. No condemnation, living in unity, 
appreciating one another, appreciating our Father and His Son. Forever. Dear Father, we just want to say thank you for what you do. That you alone can remedy the sting of sin. And you alone, alone can make restore the connection between us and you. We're so thankful for what you've done and what that means for us in order that we can stand free of judgment with you. We can stand boldly. We can come as we are. We can come when we need to because of what you did on the cross. These things we say in praise of you. In Jesus' name, amen.